Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. In our last Torah portion, uh, Tazria, we are coming into, um, we came into a discussion of um, leprosy. We came into this discussion of some kind of skin uh, affliction that also can be found on walls of houses. Um, So we know that this is not, this is, right? So we know this is not Hansen's disease, right? So when we think, this is usually interpreted as leprosy, we've kept that English translation even though it is completely inaccurate. Because I think... I think the reason they've kept the word leprosy as the translation is because we don't have a good translation for what sara'at is. Um, and the other reason is because um, I think leprosy had a real charge around it um, that was helpful. You know, it's that kind of reaction that people in the biblical world had to the idea of tsarat. The same way in our own historical memory, there would have been a reaction to leprosy. It's that kind of, you know, worry about contagion, you know, real... Um, like lice. <laughs> Thank you, Laura. Um, like that call from a school. Right, so... Exactly. Um, so, and that, and that whole idea of really isolating people who have it—that's um, very much the sense of tzara'at. So we leave it as leprosy, even though it's not Hansen's disease. Um, this goes away. Um, probably, it's. Uh, I studied in Duluth. One of my regular Torah study attendees is a dermatologist, um, and so he he said it's much more like a situation like eczema. Um, or psoriasis, that's what it was. It was like psoriasis. There you go. So something where there's discoloration, um, there would have been irritation, inflammation. Um, I was pulling in, you know, I just moved. So we're back and forth between the old place and the new place. And I pulled into the garage at the old place. And you know how you, you just see things all the time and don't notice them until you don't see them for a while and see them for the first time? And I look up on the wall of the garage and there's this white... You know, ickiness spreading on the wall. And I'm like, it's sarat. <laughs> right? This is what it means. This is exactly what it meant. It's probably a form of mold. Yeah? Um, so exactly like the skin would have looked white and weird. You know, you see this weird thing spreading on the wall. Um, and it's for them, they were the same thing. Right? The same cause of both. The symptoms were the same on a building or on a person. Um, so for us, we kind of go, what? You know, this is crazy. But if you think about where does this come from? Like, you know, and, and you don't have a scientific explanation. You, you have to be a little freaked out, right? Um, right now, I think for me, there's a part of me that is as freaked out about cancer. I don't care that we have an explanation for what it is. I'm so terrified of this insidious thing that is killing people right and left. Rabbi Rubin and I were talking about in this line of work, it's, you feel like you're walking through a minefield because we see explosions every day. Another phone call. I did a funeral yesterday, right? Five weeks ago, she was dying and she was hiking. Five weeks ago and now dead from you know, cancer that had spread everywhere. And so it, she didn't know five no. years ago. No. Well, she was lucky. She was lucky. So what I'm saying is we, you know, we still have a relationship to a very unlog- illogical, unreasonable response to disease because it threatens us at levels that are not about science. You know, and okay, I know how to not get the flu. I'm not terrified of the flu, but in the ancient world, they might have been, right? But I am terrified about not knowing I have some kind of cancer, and then it's too late. So, so we still do really understand, you know, that kind of visceral reaction to illness that is inexplicable to us. Um, even though, like I said, with cancer, we know the science. We're not sure yet how you get it, why you get it, how you prevent it. You know, and so, so it has this terror with it for some of us. Um, because we don't know what what 
causes it. We know some things that cause it, but not everything, and how to stop it. Well, it changes weekly if you listen to the media. Correct. And the media is so responsible for us all thinking we're going to get it. We're in those ancient days, you know, Chandler. Communication looks a little different. Correct. Exactly. So, so, I mean, just psychologically, I think we can take it on and... You know, so, so we do have a psychological kinship with these people who lived thousands of years ago who were, and we're going to explore you know, their system um, for dealing with some of this. And then I want to bring it back, of course, as always, um, to, to us um, in our time. See, the, the thing about this is it was visible. Right. Unlike a lot of sicknesses. Correct. You clearly saw this, and if you saw it on a wall, clearly was there. It's also always interesting to me that there was a sense that a house, we, when we think of a house, we think of the walls. I'm thinking more like a home can be diseased, which leads one in a whole other direction. Yeah. Not so much the wall, but that yeah. they're, they're just as people can be kind of out of sorts that a home or a family can also be kind of out of sorts. Yeah. Floors mm-hmm. are bodies in the house or souls, in a sense. So can be. Which was certainly their understanding. They had a much more integrated understanding. Even though sometimes that leads in a kind of direction that we wouldn't want to go, they did really understand the spiritual and the physical to be completely manifest in one another, which is why Tazria carried such a scary implication about if there's something on the walls there must be a disease in the home and that's not a direction we want to go uh, or I certainly as a progressive Jew I'm not going there um, for, but I do respect that they, they saw those things as, as inseparable well there's, there's also a sense that the land <clears throat> yeah, could oh. be polluted yeah. when, when we think of the land being polluted we think of pesticides but I think in the Torah, when they talk about the land being polluted, that, that within society and within the way people live, there can be sickness as well. So they understood kind of very modern. Sin, sin contaminated not only the cultic space, but the ground itself. <clears throat> so that is how, in part, the understanding of exile being the result of sin, you know, as a as a consequence of sin made sense. Enough corruption, enough sin, meaning how people behaved with one another, enough wrong going on, and the land is contaminated to the point it spits the people out. Literally, that's how they understood it. So for us, you know, I say to my bar and kids who are studying that particular parsha, I'm like, hello, hello. We are literally poisoning the ground out of our own sinfulness right it is our greed they were going ahead of their time and i mean i really i mean we really have, we really think we are we are coming back in that way right to really? some kind of understanding that it you cannot separate the two i can't separate my greed and my consumerism anymore right you know, that sinful behavior i can't separate that anymore from toxicity of the planet of the ozone, of therefore other life forms being killed, or you know the tadpoles that are all misshapen, right? You know that, that we're warping nature itself and could destroy the planet itself if we don't start to turn this ship. So, we as much at, we look at ground like as a collection of atoms, and whereas for right when we look at ground, we look at it as a physical thing. And I don't think when they said the land, they were necessarily talking about. I mean, they were talking about the physical land, but it had other dimensions. They didn't separate out the atoms and the, the morality, the, kind of the way we do. Right. And, and so what I'm saying is I think we're coming back to a place of understanding the integration of these different levels of existence. Speaking of greed... I just think what is so horrifying is what's happening, what we're finding out about General Motors right now. Tell me I've been in a hole. For 57 cents, they could have changed a part on the, I guess that's called the ignition, um, and people have died because of it. And it could have been changed. They knew about it years ago. 57 cents a car. Yeah. Well, plus so five, ten are, they setting, is a lot of money. are they setting up this new female 
Senior, they right. put, they knew about it. They installed her the car gal. I was so suspicious when they installed her because I represented General Motors in my very first legal job 30 years ago for the GM engine switch. Remember when they had the Chevy engine and the Oldsmobile, and they knew about it. It was just something they did. Yeah, they said that's right and confidential. But I saw that. I was just like, something's going on here. That's a big setup. And there it is. And there it is, right? That, that our immorality, our greed, leads to really dire consequences. And we do not tie those together nearly strongly enough anymore. They did. So let's, let's look a little bit at this. And I want us to, so as we read, let's hold you know, all of this um, as the context for our, our looking at the actual Torah text, which begins at... 14.1. In your green book, it's 6.5.9. What in the red? 6.6.0 in the red. All right, somebody want to begin? I spoke to Moses saying, This shall be the ritual for a leper. And it will be reported to the priest. The priest shall go outside the camp. If the priest sees that the leper has been healed of the scaly affection, it's affected. The skin is affected. Right. The priest shall order two live pure birds, cedar wood, crimson stuff, and hyssop to be brought before the one to be purified. The priest shall order one of the birds slaughtered over the fresh water in the earthen vessel, and he shall take the live bird along with the cedar wood, the crimson stuff, and the hyssop, and dip them together with the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slaughtered over the fresh water. He shall then sprinkle it seven times on the one to be purified of the eruption and effect purification, and he shall set the live bird free in the open country. The one to be purified shall wash those clothes, shave off all hair, and bathe in water, and then shall be pure. After that, the camp may be entered, but one must remain outside one's tent seven days. On the seventh day, all hair shall be shaved off of head, beard, if any, and eyebrows, having shaved off all hair, the person shall wash those clothes and bathe the body in water, and then shall be pure. On the eighth day, that person shall take two male lambs without blemish, one ewe lamb in its first year without blemish, three-tenths of a measure of choice, choice flour, with oil mixed in for a meal offering, and one log of oil. These shall be presented before Adonai with the person to be purified and the entrance of the tent of meeting by the priest who performs the purification. Go on. I'm stopping here. Would somebody have to Somebody go on. The priest shall take one of the male lambs and offer it with the log of oil as a reparation offering, and he shall elevate them as an elevation offering before the Lord. The lamb shall be slaughtered at the spot of the sacred area where the purification offering and the burnt offering are slaughtered. For the, re, uh, for the reparation offering, like the purification offering, goes to the priest. It is most holy. The priest shall take some of the blood of the reparation offering, and the priest shall put it on the ridge of the right ear of him who is being purified, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. <coughs> The priest shall then take some of the log of oil and pour it into the palm of his own left hand. And the priest shall dip his right finger in the oil that is in the palm of his left hand and sprinkle some of the oil with his finger seven times before the Lord. Some of the oil left in his palm shall be put by the priest on the ridge of the right ear of the one being purified, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot over the blood of the reparation offering. The rest of the oil in his palm the priest shall put on the head of the one being purified. Thus the priest shall make expiation for him before the Lord. The priest shall then offer the purification offering and make expiation for the one being purified of his impurity. 
Last, <laughs> there's more, but not least. <laughs> God forbid. I added that. That's not it. The, the burnt offering shall be slaughtered, and the priest shall offer the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar, and the priest shall make expiation for him. Then he shall be pure. All right. I'm even <laughs> Um, I want to ask why we view this as a holy book. This is such mumbo jumbo. Mind my saying so? It's, it's spooky. I mean, it's you know, it's witchcraft. You know, and we're to, we're we're re- revering this. I don't mm-hmm. get it. Okay. Because it's of its time. <laughs> and because people needed somebody to do something it's for ritual. them. And this was this was a ritual, and it had a calming effect, like any ritual does. All right. So these are these are the questions. These are the questions, right? This is this is my job security, right? If this question doesn't come up, I don't have a job, right? So, so I love this question um, because my whole life is about answering that question. Why does it matter? What does it have to say to us, right? Why is this in any way holy? Let's go. And your answer is, go on, <laughs> I know, I miss Reuben at times like this. Right. Turn the page. And by the way, there's supposedly no excess words in the Torah, and this is a lot. It's a lot of words. This is a it's lot. a lot of words. Right. First it shaves all his hair twice. It is fascinating to me. Seems like a waste of words. Okay, so we're holding all of that in our sacred space. Love that. Love that. All right, so this shall be the ritual for a mitzorah. What is a mitzorah? Wait, where are At the beginning. Where am I starting? I'm starting at the beginning. This shall be the ritual for a mitzorah. A leper. Uh, <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> she, she says in English, a leper. <laughs> okay, mitzora is from one who has tsara'at. Right? Tsara'at is the condition. Mitzora is one who is dealing with tsara'at. So leprosy, leper. Right? That's the the linguistic connection in Hebrew. We're going to see, Bert's already hinting at it. Um, we're going to see where the rabbis go with that. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, though. Um, so, is it singular, like the person who's got it, or is it the person who's got it? Who's the person who's it? got it. Okay. So, yeah, the one who has okay. it. All right. Th- this is the, the Torah Tamitzorah, the Torah of the Mitzorah. <laughs> um, on the day, or regarding the day, Teherato, that that person is tahord, is purified. So this is not about leprosy. What is this about? Purification, the person. This is about re-entry. We forget that. This is about chemo is done. Radiation is done. It's months later. The scans are clear. Oh, do you have a phone call? Do you have a phone chain to let people know that? Is it an email that you sound out? Is it Caring Bridge? Right? We forget. There, we have no way of telling one another, I'm back. It's okay. It's all gone. I want to be regular again. I want to be normal again. I want to be part of the community again and not a cancer patient. So this is the process whereby one is brought back from separation and isolation because one has been different. One has been physically or otherwise, because they tied it to more than just the physical, different now, how do we come back from that? So that's the focus of our Parsha. That goes for me to why this is a sacred text. Because it cares about bringing people back in when they have experienced something like this. And we, frankly, do not honor that very well at all uh, in our culture. Richard? It, it seems to me also that... The, the ritual uh, that the leper has to undergo is really 
less for him or her than it is than it is for the community. In what way? Well, in the sense that it's it's in, it's incumbent on the community to reaccept that person as a as a normal person and to not continue to shun them even though even though they're beyond the time that that they thought he might be he or she might be contagious or you know a threat to the community. So that's why to some extent you need to you need to dress it up with a priestly ritual to telegraph to the community, hey, this person is okay, no longer shun him, accept him into your activities and so on. So the ritual doesn't so much change the person, it changes the community's perception of the person and obligates them to accept the changed status of the person as now they have to take that person back. Okay, excellent. So before that, which which anthropologically in some ways is the point of all ritual because all ritual in some way generally deals with status. Right? All of our rituals deal with a change in status. And status is always social. Right? So when one becomes married, why does every culture known to humankind have a ritual at marriage? Because there's, it's a way of marking a change in status from being people who are associated with each other to becoming kin, right? You now become, with that ritual, your status changes. You are now family. You are now kin. That is an important status change. And status, it, the people don't change. Their love doesn't change. Their relationship doesn't change. Or maybe it does. Um, but it's really about the community now having to accept them having to. You know, the community now accepts them as related. Literally. Right? That is a very big status change. You know, death is the same way. So... There's all kinds of things that are about status. This one, in that sense, Richard, is completely correct. The ritual is about the change of status so that the community must accept this person as Tahor. Whatever their feelings are, they must accept this person as Tahor. Yeah, I was thinking about AIDS. Mm -hmm. Yes. That way, you know, for so many years, people were afraid to be near somebody. I mean, something like this, a ritual would have been so nice would have been, or even like returning veterans, that any change in status like that, the people come in and there's no, there's no welcome, there's nobody saying, you're okay now, you're part of us again. You read any Torah commentary written in the 80s, you know what I mean, that was contemporary, and Tastria and Matora go right to oh, I didn't the idea of AIDS, okay. completely, because it was so stigmatized right. that it was, it was a powerful parallel yeah, to this stigma um, and we're gonna we're gonna look a little bit um, at an at a part of an article written um, in the book Torah queries um, written all from a queer perspective all these commentaries on every part of the Torah from a queer perspective and of course that's on Mitzorah right it's we're not going to look at that part of the article but but his article comes out of somebody who of course was dealing with AIDS and died of AIDS I'm sorry. Yes. So, so we're gonna. So let's walk through. I want to walk just through some of the elements of the of the ritual, not to understand the ritual, but to understand the. Not that we shouldn't, but um, but but to understand. I think what some of the other resonances here are that I think are important. All right. So, when it's been reported to the priest, the priest shall go outside the camp. So the priest leaves the community and goes to the leper. I think that is important. Who goes from the center of status, the center of, of elevated, lofty, sacred power, who goes from there to see the leper now? The Catholics are doing a pretty good job of this. I don't know about the Jews. Last night, we had uh, a speaker here. Some, some of us were there, the founder of Homeboy Industries, who talked about the importance of going out to the edge 
And that was very much about bringing people back in, although there wasn't a ritual involved. The importance of that... Clearly, the tattoo removal yeah, is the rich, part right. of the ritual because yeah. the tattoo is a serious ritual right. with serious status implications. But it appears here that it was reported to the priest. It says when it was reported to the priest that the person was cured. But when the priest goes out, the priest does not know that the person That's has right. been cured. And the priest is checking on the person. Right. We're going to go to that that part of it. I'm just, I just want to lift them up and then we'll we'll deal with them. So the priest is going to the edge. The priest is going outside the camp to the leper. I think this is critically important. The priest, right, shall see if, if he's been healed of the scaly affection. So the physical change, right, that marks, okay, the, the ordeal itself is over. The priest shall order two live birds, okay, cedar wood, crimson stuff, and hyssop. Where do we see cedar wood, crimson <coughs> stuff, and hyssop? Huh. We've seen this before. Yeah. And you won't remember where you've seen it before. The Mishkan somewhere? <laughs> Very interesting. So, Mishkan. <clears throat> this is the ritual paintbrush. You tie them together, and it's a ritual paintbrush. The priest shall order one of the birds slaughtered over fresh water in an earthen vessel. What happens if you slaughter a bird over a bowl of water? The blood goes into, rather than wherever it would go otherwise, it goes into the water. Okay? So, what's going what's to happen now? And he shall take the live bird along with the paintbrush and dip them together, meaning the together is the paintbrush, all those species together, dip them with the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slaughtered. Okay, we're dipping the paintbrush in blood. Huh. Really? Does that sound familiar to anybody? (laughs) Passover? Talk to me about Passover. Sarah just got it. When do we take... Huh. Huh. We don't have any problem with that ritual. We see some power in that. Or at least some of us do. You know, the birth canal, right? You pass through the bloody portal, through the water. Hello? And you emerge a people? Ooh. Right? That is cool. Right? Well, we take this ritual paintbrush that everyone knows you do on Pesach... That, you know, that, that's the story anyways. That, you know, the, the blood was painted on the door, and what are we doing? We are taking it, the ritual paintbrush, we dip it in the blood, and what are we going to do with it? We're going to, that and the live bird go in the blood, right? Then sprinkle it seven times on the one to be purified. Then... After, as soon as that blood is now on the person who's being purified, the live bird is set free with that, with that same blood on its wing. This is the diluted blood. In, it's in the water. Yes. Yeah. In open country. <clears throat> That's very counterintuitive for modern ideas about catching things through intimate fluids. but the bird doesn't have anything the bird doesn't have sarat the bird is a representation right of the former status that now is dead it's gone and the so that it's a representation of that condition and the live bird is dipped in that condition and set free in open country. Why? Is that symbolic of uh, something leaving? Yeah. Away. Yes. Impurity. Take it with you. The scapegoat. The scapegoat is the same exact impulse. You, the priest lays his hands on the goat, and that becomes the one designated to be sent out. Right? To be sent away. Take the sins of this people. It now gets transferred onto the, the goat. Go. 
take it with you. <clears throat> Who here does tashlich? Used to. All right, so it's mumbo jumbo. Why would we do such a silly thing? Because we still understand the power of designating this. We use birdseed, those of us who are ecologically correct. Um, This birdseed, right? I transfer. I I kneel in front of my daughter and have since she could walk at Tashlich. Because we did it during the day. Um, And I say to her, what does mommy need to ask forgiveness for from you? And she would say, when mommy yells. Okay, so mommy's really sorry for yelling. And I promise, I really promise, I'm going to try to notice that I'm about to yell and I'm not going to yell. Hopefully, as much in this coming year. Throw the bird seed. What else does mommy need? Right? This was, for me, by far the most powerful ritual of my year. It remains the most humbling and powerful ritual of my year. Do I think the bird seed makes me less impatient? <laughs> no, right? Why do we do it then? Why do we do ritual, right? It, there's, there is a way it helps us affect change. There's a way it gets at the part of us that is not tied to the logical that is tied to the mythological, that is tied to the ineffable, that is tied to those things we cannot explain, but that we experience deeply. So it's a way of affecting change for me and of affecting the status of, and wholeness of my relationship with my daughter because it allows her to help forgive me. And when my status changes to someone who is forgiven... I am able to behave differently. There is significant power in ritual when we allow it to be so. And we, in our rational age of reason, capital R, post-enlightenment attachment to everything has to be about logic and reason, we have lost, I believe, that's why I sit in this chair, some of the power. I watch it happen before the open arc. Right on here in the sanctuary, the ritual that Rabbi Lewert created of blessed memory. The the ark is open. People come and have this moment in front of the open ark. It's something I got here and went, what? I discomprehended. I said, I it's magic. I've never seen anything like this. I don't know what to do with this. This makes me really uncomfortable. And I had to sit with because it doesn't make sense in my in my reasoned brain. It was like I was standing in front of the open heart. I don't get it. And but I saw the power of it. And like any priestly role, your job is to embrace and help amplify people's experience of rituals that move them. And so. It was a transformative moment. I could see it for the people who were attached to it. And that's all that matters, is that it was effective for them. Um, it's an interesting word to use, but it's, it is, it's a technology. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the same way that like when you do spiritual practice, it's the, the various rituals or things that you do in order to become mindful. It's not about the ritual, it's about becoming mindful. So when during Tashlik, when you're throwing, whether you're throwing bird seed or breadcrumbs or whatever, there's no magic in the bird seed or the breadcrumbs, but it is a technology for making you more aware of the things that you need to focus on. And a transition, right? right. So some kind of change. Um, so then the person is going to wash their clothes, shave off their hair, and bathe in water, and then shall be pure. So this is, as Mickey suggested, mikvah. This is mikvah. And once again, a ritual that we have really lost touch with. And when I was doing conversions in Duluth, um, there was no mikvah that we could use. That was the only mikvah was an Orthodox mikvah, and they would not allow us to use it for the purposes of conversion, of course. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so the only place to do mikvah was the lake. Well, you have the land of ten thousand lakes. You have the lake, right? The largest body of fresh water in the world. Do you want to think for a moment about how cold that is, <laughs> even in July? Um, or you can pick a really small lake, right? That's 
warmer. Um, so right by where I lived, walking distance, was a, a beautiful little lake. Um, and so our ritual was to to start at my house, do bait dean at my house, and then we walked with the candidate. Um, the witnesses and I walked the candidate to the water um, where they went and did mikvah and emerged Jewish. And walking home, I said to them, these are your first steps into Jewish living and Jewish life. And we walked with them. And when we got back to the house, people were there that they had invited, singing Simen Tov and Mazel Tov. And we had a seudat mitzvah, a, a meal of celebration for a mitzvah. So it changed forever my understanding of mikvah because it was the central ritual. It was a lovely beitin. The lunch was lovely. But something happened from the time we said this candidate has been accepted to the time we walked back, some magical, amazing thing happened. They became Jews. They emerged, reborn as Jews. It was so mind-blowing every time because it was different every time. Um, and the power of that I just feel like we need to figure out what our connection to that is. I'm not saying it needs to be exactly, you know, what what mikvah obviously was understood to be in the past, but the power of mikvah to change us is seriously wonderfully available if we can get past our our doubting, you know, logical minds. Okay. Um, um, Malibu Community, also Reconstruction's congregation, they're putting up. Uh, they're going to be putting up a new facility in which uh, they're going to have a mikvah there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's something to consider. Uh, sure. Uh, it's closer than slipping through people. <laughs> so we go to AJU. We go to American Jewish University, where there is a beautiful mikvah. It is a beautiful community mikvah, and it is the only community mikvah west of the. What's the big river? Mississippi. Um, thank you. Thank you. West. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a little, and aside on the mikvah is, I think for me, not just a, a block of rituals being useful for helping us change our status, but the mikvah in particular was always understood as, isn't that something that's denigrating to women because you're dirty? I mean, that's the only ritual I was aware of growing up. I know. never replaced that with any other awareness of what its use is. So that's another right. place to re-educate people what it's about. Right. What about the idea of fresh running water in a mikvah where they bring ice cubes into there to get their water because water can't... That, that's how they tra- evidently transport it there. To the AJU mikvah, uh, yes. They transport so, it frozen. I mean, when you did that, you did it in a natural... Yes. Run. So I'm, yes. I'm just wondering if that... When I heard about the ice blocks, it bothered me because there's something about running water that purifies. It takes things away. It brings things in where you get a contained kind of situation and then everybody's doing it. really bothered me. So, yeah, there's a plug. You know, they pull the plug so that, so yeah, that other water is coming in. Stuff comes in, but a lot stays. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, before you mentioned uh, marriage, and I'm thinking the power of symbols, the chuppah. It's not water, it's not a mikvah, but somehow after you stood under the chuppah together with your person of intimacy, you come out and, you know, everybody looks so different. <laughs> they look a little bit serious and worried and they come out <laughs> I wish I had a camera because I loved that nonverbal description, Sarah, of, um, right, the concern and the furrowed brow going going in and then the absolute open-faced release, release and joy as, as they come out. It's true, right? These are those moments of, of transformation, and you can see it. You can see the power of that um, in really amazing, amazing ways. Um, all right, so... Why is the live bird dipped in pure watered-down blood leaving, like taking away sin, if there was nothing 
we say it's both it's clean that's why we're sprinkling it on the person but it's clean so the live bird's flying away with clean stuff on it yeah just right that's what we could get it, <laughs> um it's just very trick of the mind very interesting right um you know so right the same blood that <clears throat> purifies the person <clears throat> contaminates the bird Right in a oh, way, does right? It, say that it, it doesn't. But but you're but what you're saying is, yeah. wait a minute. The blood that you're sending away must be contaminated, or why would you send it away? So this it's a very interesting paradoxical thing that we again, as logical, rational, we think this way, and, and it's linear thinking. In the ancient world, they didn't have that. So the same red heifer that purifies the people contaminates the priest that touches it. It's so holyfying. It's so strongly purifying that it contaminates the person who touches it. So the one of the things that helps me understand that is a, an ADD medication, caffeine, Ritalin, given to a normal person, right, makes them crazy. But that same Ritalin given to me or my daughter... I don't take it, which is why I'm like I am. Um, you know, right? Settles the ADD person down. Why? Because there's, it's the same thing, right? But it's it's the condition, in some ways, of the thing receiving it, or whatever. You know, I mean, it, it's it can do this. It can do the same and the opposite thing. So it purifies the person. But when put on a bird that has not dealt with anything, has not dealt with sara'at. You're, you're marking it as, you know, here's the blood of Tzara'at, take it away. Um, so we have to hold that kind of, you know, dual purpose agent stuff um, in mind when we're thinking about all of these rituals. Wouldn't another way of thinking about the bird, though, be as opposed to a scapegoat, which you sort of, you know, sort of, Kick out of a, you sort of kick out of the community and you sort of like force them to go on this path that takes mm-hmm. them away. The bird has this autonomy to go wherever it wants to go. If it wants to, if it wants to leave, it can leave. But if it wants to stay, it can just go back to you know back into the community of where it's used to hanging out. Um, so that's why some people, the rabbis say the bird um, has to be an untamed bird, a wild bird. Oh, so... That would not return. It will... Oh, okay. But that's the rabbis. I mean, that's okay. a later... But the, Because they had your question. Wait a minute. If it's a pigeon, it's going to go back to where it goes back to. So it seems that the rabbis suggest it had to be something that okay. would take off Maybe and it go. spreading the life force out beyond. It doesn't say that it's taking sin away or taking security away. Okay. Sort of sending word out to the beyond that, that all is well. Lovely. Margo? I was going to say that um, when people say to me, what, why do you um, like all the services or what's important to you about services and stuff? Because Margo comes to services to every week, week people. people. I've always said it's a ritual. And I've said that, but I never really thought about it. And still today, um, and hearing it, some rituals explain so articulately, um, it really gave me a sense of why I love ritual. It just seems to be um, that it helps make it real, and it helps make changes in your Nice. It's such a ritual, though. It's such a loaded word nowadays, particularly for so many people who reject religion because they say it's empty ritual. And when you say ritual, a lot of people think empty. And so, right, and like Laura saying, you know, empties would be the problem there. Yeah, I don't... Yeah, no, no, I, right? Rit- to me, ritual doesn't feel loaded at all. I go to ritual is a ritual. What? I go to ritual is also a ritual. A no to ritual. No. A person can be very orthodox in their ritual. It's the same possibility as the person who. That's terrific. All right, let's look at the let's look at the bottom. I, I do want to draw our attention to this business of putting the blood on the right ear 
the thumb and the big toe. Where have we seen this before? We definitely saw it before. Where did we see this before? The priests. What, what with the priests? The ordination of the priests. Not only may you not treat this person as impure anymore, but we are going to do the same rite and ritual on this person that was done to consecrate the priests. The same thing that was done, if you saw it as effective on us, your priests, then if we do it to them, you not only can't treat them differently anymore, you must now treat them as somebody who has had a pretty powerful marking of, right, purification, sanctity, you know, whatever you, you know, kind of concentration of Kedusha. Um, wow. <clears throat> Can you imagine? <laughs> Bless you, acknowledging that there is a way our suffering of certain things changes us, deepens our understanding of life and health and holiness, and concentrates that gratitude and awareness in us that is deserving of marking. And takes them from the farthest edges of the community beyond to the very center. Page 141. Let's look at the bottom. Lovely, Laura. Lovely. Somebody start at I suggest, the bottom paragraph. I, I suggest that Tazria does not only offer us a simple test of patience and endurance. Tazria offers us a substantial test case to examine our real social potential for tolerance and inclusion. The potential to turn a touch from a moment of fear into one of redemption. And that moment, because you didn't read the rest of the article, is when the priest touches the person to examine them, right? That moment of fear of touching what is affected, right? Um, it's the priest who does that. So that's a pow- he's saying that's a powerful thing, that the priest touches that person, right, to, to, and to see them. Okay, go ahead. Tazria pushes us to ask ourselves how tolerant we really are of variations from our picture of an ideal human body. How willing are we to examine, look into, consider, and understand these differences carefully before throwing them into one generalizing basket of rejection? We can expand this challenge and ask ourselves how comfortable we are with divergence, diversity, and deviation from the norm in general, both in ourselves and in others. Okay, I love this. I love this interpretation. Who's the writer? I should have given you that. I apologize. Ayala Shashua Miron, who was one of the authors in uh, this book, um, and is drawing the the parallel between the condition of last week's Tazria, you know, dealing with all that, the woman in that state, um, the the lepers in a similar state, you know, of otherness, um, that he's or she is suggesting um, that the parallel between that state and any state that we would consider divergent. I just finished the Divergent Trilogy. There is a very popular book among teenagers right now, and the first book is called Divergent. And I am thrilled that this is a popular book among young people. It's a little dark. Um, It's a little Hunger Games-ish. So that part's scary to me, that our kids are relating so clearly to violence as, as possible. You know, it's happening to them. That's scary to me, um, and scary to them, obviously, um, or there wouldn't be violence. <laughs> um, so, but I love the fact that these kids are eating this book up, and it's now coming out as a major feature film. Be- why do I love it? Because the character is divergent, and in her society, that is a death sentence, being divergent, and she's the heroine. Right, And so it's like these kids are flocking to a story where the person who's the center of the story is divergent. How wonderful is that? Right? It's not the normal, you know, the most healthy example of the, you know, what the media would tell us is the most beautiful example of the species hunting down the divergent. It's 
I mean, that's kind of the premise of the story. But of course, the hero is the heroine is divergent. That's the hero of the story is taking out the perfect, you know, examples of what we think is supposed to be normative. Um, that that that's that's oppressive to them. And I'm like, yay! Maybe this generation is gonna get it, right? That they okay. We we have gender non-conforming. People in high school suing the school district because there's not a bathroom for them to use. Wow, terrific! That's so amazing to me that this generation is really going to say, "Wait a minute! What if we don't understand male or female as the only options? What if that does not speak to who we are? Why do we have to accept your notions of what's n- normal? Gender non-conforming is normal." For some people, right? And so um, I find it very exciting that that we are now being challenged you know, as the older generation. We are being g- generations, because um, I love it that there's more than one in this room. Um, we're being challenged with how tolerant are we really? How accepting are we really of but is this differences? Really, is this really acceptance in, 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 in the portion because... The person is not <clears throat> purified, in quotes, and let back into the community until the affliction is gone. So this, There's a sense this particular that article, be this this particular article is not about the that this this particular article. And I'm again, I apologize for not going through more of the beginning of it. Is about the moment the priest crosses oh. into. The leper camp. Because the I, minute the priest crosses out of normative and goes to attend, and so let's just let's, like the AIDS patients. Correct. 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 So so let's go to go, drop down to page one forty two. I know it's tiny. It's the only way we could get it on the page, and I didn't have time to get it bigger for you. Um, and Bert, you'll read later this interpretation higher um, links. Uh, a story of disease to the creation story. So, because I think that addresses your point. But go, drop down to Tazria invites us. Tazria invites us to explore a different realm of perfection, which has to do not with the heavenly power of creation, <coughs> but with the power of a human gesture. The Kohen, the priest representing society, is the one who defines the nega, the affliction. He offers the necessary steps to redeem the infection and invites the infected back into society through his touch of grace. The priest is called to visit the infected, to examine their conditions, to measure the marks on their skin, and pay careful attention to the differences that they show over time. The priest is called to frame and reframe the nega, the touched area. His willingness to look and get in touch with the infected body, his closeness, and his repeated attention are all part of a gesture that turns the site of infection into one of purity. So that's what I would reconstruct from... You go into the heart of your question. I would reconstruct this parsha for in our time. The meaning for us, right, is about this moment of changing something that's been seen as an infection into purity. Could be mental illness. Which mean, which means we need to change our understanding of what we now call afflicted and change it in that same thing into right. Purity. Potential purity. Potential purity. Exactly right. So go on. If we are willing. If we are willing to use the infection as a metaphor for other forms of difference in relation, we can appreciate the effort those regulations make to stretch the boundaries of the community to maintain itself and everyone in it as holy. If we go a step further, we can also learn that the marginalized and oppressed are not only a challenge to society, but also an opportunity an invitation to bring hidden treasures into light. Okay. So I'll let you spend some more time on your own with this. Um, he's talking about a midrash where the house had sara'at, and God brought the sara'at as you know is the language Torah uses. And so there's a midrash that says um, that that because God, why would God bring sara'at? Was the question asked in the midrash, and the rabbis answered, God brought sara'at to the houses of the Israelites as a blessing. Because there was a commandment to, to rip out those walls, to tear down that house. And when they tore down the house, they found that the Canaanites had hidden gold in the walls. 
And so everybody whose house had sara'at had to be torn down, and those were the people that found gold, and they became very exceedingly wealthy. Because that midrash is a story about what we understand as affliction, right? Has hidden rewards. Is this a reaction possibly, I'm just thinking that, to the ancient time and today, when there is a child born with deformity and cast out of the, the camp or the civilization? We look at people who are different from ourselves and are cast out, and here it's saying, no, no, no. Correct. Bring them back in. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's what I'm saying, mentally ill, whatever it may be, that they are different. Mm-hmm. Somebody's visiting them and bringing them back in. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give you, you've seen this. I know. If you were at the women's retreat last year, you saw this. But I can't help it. It's my favorite piece in the world on this. It's my favorite in the whole world. So you'll forgive me if you were at the women's retreat last year. Forget things after like a month. (laughs) (laughs) But it's really profound for me. There's just one point that was brought up last night at this conversation at Father Boyle's at our table. Uh, Fred Samuel said, I wish we could get rid of the word tolerant. It's right. sort of a negative. Right, yes. Why not embrace? Agreed, agreed. And something more positive as opposed to just tolerate. Okay, love, yes, 100%. All right, so she's writing this. Rabbi Tirza Firestone wrote this uh, in honor of Reb Zalman. Uh, it was his birthday, and so what you do to honor a rabbi at any time is give a Devar Torah. Zalman Schechter. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. No, Zalman Schechter Shalom. Yeah. So he, um, he... It was his birthday. The, on the occasion of a rabbi's anything, you, you write a Devar Torah in their honor. That's the highest honor you can, the greatest gift you can give them is a Devar Torah on that week's Parsha related to that rabbi and that rabbi's teaching or that rabbi's event in their life. So she, so he had this Parsha, and so she's writing this commentary with, with him in mind. Um, and so she calls him the Kohen, right? He's, he's the Kohen for them. Okay, la, 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 la. Um, let's go down. So she says, we're all a mitzorah, and she says... Another way the rabbis play with um, mitzorah, uh, which um, the rabbis have several ways of playing with it, because, of course, they have similar questions to us, right? Why, what's the meaning of this? Why is it still relevant to us? Why, why would we deal with this parsha? right? How can it have any relevance to our lives? Mitzorah. Okay, what are we going to do with that? Because there's, you know, the Torah is written by God and there's never a wasted word. And there has to be deeper meanings than just this means leper. Can't be. Of course it's, of course not. So one is motzi, motzi, shame, ra. So I hate printing, so I wish I could do cursive, but no one can read it then. So the rabbis say, don't read this as leprosy. God forbid there's more going on there. Mitzara is an acronym. It's an acronym for Motsi Shame Ra. Motsi Shame Ra. One who brings about an evil name. How do you bring about an evil name? Gossip. Gossip. So for the rabbis, this is about Lashon Hara. This is about gossip and ruining people's reputations. And it is a very serious, very serious, serious situation. Mm-hmm. All right. But this one that, that Rabbi Tirza Firestone plays with is Matzah. It's also an acronym, of course, because there's lots of levels of God's brilliant teaching for us. Matzah Ra. What is Matzah? Found. Found. Good. Found what? What's Ra? Evil. What is, what is going on? What's the condition that's really going on? Is we look in the place of what should be sustenance and we found matzah ra, matzinu ra. We found instead negativity. When we looked into the depth of our birthright and lineage, we found stagnancy instead of running water. We found isolation and separation, not the big view. Matsinu, we found ra, negativity. We are all the ra at one time or another. And so what happens? We have to literally go out of the machaneh, out of the mainstream. There we are followed by the Kohen, who for so many of us, of course, in their case is Reb Zalman, and she goes through a, a, a bit about how he affects change, but then drop down to these are our shamanic rituals. 
These are our shamanic rituals. And the one that we have found for coming back into the camp to bring our riches back into the machaneh has to do with two birds, a cedar branch, crimson wool, and hyssop along with the running water. Birds are a symbol of the soaring human spirit, the spirit that's alive within us. Notice that we take two. One is saved and one is killed. Why is that? The one that's killed has to do with that part of our spirit which has to be exchanged, sacrificed, so that we can fly free. In order to soar, in order to really have mochin de gadlut, expanded consciousness, some part of us must be sacrificed. Each one of us knows this in our own personal lives, and we certainly know it as a people, as a nation. On the way to being here now, renewing Judaism, we have suffered an incredible loss. One of our birds, the twin bird, has died, and on its wings come us. And having survived this loss, we know that we are never going to be the same When we have come to consciousness, we know that we are inalterably changed by this sacrifice. Our twin soul, perhaps the innocence in us, or the people that we had to leave in order to be where we are now, is gone. We are marked. And so the Torah tells us, in its deep wisdom, that our wings are dipped in the blood of our twin soul, That blood is on our wings as we soar. But do we soar? And we're lifted off into the fields to fly freely. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.